Hello everyone, and welcome to the February 23rd edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Skarin & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started with our litigation report. The Second District Court of Appeal reversed the Workers' Comp Appeals Board, finding that the medical evidence on the cause of the psychiatric injury and sleep disorder was not substantial evidence. The court held that the psychologist's opinion on causation was based on an inadequate medical history. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Radiator USA versus the Workers' Comp Appeals Board. M. King sustained an admitted injury to his back in 2010 while working as a driver for Radiator USA. King additionally claimed to have sustained injury to a psych and sleep disorder. David Peckman, doctor, was the AME in orthopedics. Dr. Peckman noted that the compression fractures in Kang's vertebrae appeared old, and he thought that most of Kang's pain related to the old metabolic compression fractures. Thus, the agreed medical examiner apportioned 50% of the orthopedic injury to non-industrial pre-existing bone disease. Rodney Bluestone, the qualified medical evaluator in rheumatology, confirmed Kang had metabolic bone disease but could not determine a cause. Although Dr. Bluestone requested additional testing to determine the cause of the metabolic bone disease, there was no supplemental report that addressed causation. Anna Nagalis, PhD, evaluated Kang as a secondary treating physician in psychology. She obtained a history of the injury, the treatment, and physical and emotional complaints exclusively from Kang. Dr. Nagalis explicitly noted that she did not receive medical or employment records for review. Dr. Nagalis found that as a consequence of his industrial accident, Mr. King developed anxiety that increased with the passage of time. She said that the percentage of causation was higher than the legal 50% threshold. She specifically noted a non-industrial causal factor of a dog bite in 2005, but she made no mention of Dr. Peckman's apportionment to the pre-existing bone disease. The Workers' Comp Appeals Board judge found that Kang sustained industrial injury to his back, to his psyche, and in the form of a sleep disorder, and reconsideration was denied. However, the Court of Appeal reversed and remanded in the unpublished case. The Court of Appeal noted that Dr. Nagalis was completely unaware of the fact that Dr. Peckman had apportioned 50% of the orthopedic injury to non-industrial pre-existing metabolic bone disease. The court could not answer the question concerning what percent of the psychiatric injury was attributable to non-industrial causes. In short, what was needed here is an expert opinion that is based on a complete medical history, which necessarily includes Dr. Peckman's finding that 50% of the orthopedic injury is attributable to non-industrial causes. The court concluded that given the lack of competent medical evidence on causation, the decision of the Appeals Board cannot stand. The decision of the Appeals Board was annulled and the matter was remanded for further proceedings. A new Workers' Comp Appeals Board noteworthy panel decision ruled that an applicant gets only one QME panel at a time. The case of Fernando Martinez versus Santa Clarita Community College District involves a denied claim of continuous trauma injury to his back, circulatory system, psyche, nervous system, hypertension, diabetes, and upper and lower gastrointestinal 
systems. The applicant objected to the 2012 report from the treating orthopedist, Dr. Robert Reich, based upon a disability status of the applicant's medical condition. The applicant simultaneously filed three separate requests from QME panels in the specialties of orthopedics, psychiatry, and internal medicine. In each of the 106 forms, the applicant checked off the box indicating that the reason that the QME panel is being requested was Labor Code Section 4062. An orthopedic panel issued February 7th and psychiatry and internal medicine panels on February 10th 2014. The defendant objected to the internal and psychiatric panels and the workers' compensation judge ordered the defendant to authorize the orthopedic PQME evaluation and found that the applicant was not entitled to undergo PQME evaluations in the specialties of psychiatry and internal medicine. The applicant petition for removal was denied by incorporating the reasoning of the workers' comp appeals board judge. The applicant must first complete an initial PQME examination prior to obtaining PQME evaluations in other specialties. The applicant has not met the criteria in Rule 31.7 for obtaining different specialties. The applicant also failed to submit the appropriate form to request QME panels regarding other specialties. Form 31.7 requires that the prior PQME panel number be identified when requesting other specialties which could not have been done in this case as all three QME panels were improperly requested at the same time. The applicant also failed to comply with the requirements of Labor Code Section 4062 regarding psychiatric and internal PQMEs. There is no reference in the primary treating physician's report with regard to any alleged internal or psychiatric injuries or complaints. Moreover, the applicant did not object to the findings of a psychiatrist or internal doctor prior to requesting PQME panels in the specialties of psychiatry and internal medicine. Accordingly, the applicant failed to comply with the requirements of Labor Code Section 4062 with regard to obtaining a PQME panel in specialties other than orthopedics. And now for our fraud report. Dr. Stephen Manger, who runs the Pacific Pain Care Institute in Salinas, was arrested on Valentine's Day, no less, last year on suspicion of driving under the influence of methamphetamine. But, prosecutors said, the U.S. Department of Justice Crime Lab in Sacramento is so backed up, Manger's toxicology report was not available until last month. Manger was officially charged on January 21st and arraigned 364 days after his arrest. His arraignment in Monterey County Superior Court was the day after federal agents swooped down on his office in his home of Salinas. The Monterey County District Attorney's Office Healthcare Fraud Unit served a search warrant with help from other law enforcement agencies. At the same time, another group of agents searched Salinas Chinatown home for methamphetamine, heroin, marijuana, and cash. Twelve arrests stemmed from that raid. Prosecutors say Dr. Manger collected 10 traffic citations between 2005 and 2012 for minor incidents. In that time period, he was also sued four separate times in civil court. This is not the first time Manger has come under scrutiny from a state medical board. 
In 2012, Menger was placed on three years probation following an investigation into his treatment of a 60-year-old man who had chronic neck pain. According to court documents, Manger kept shoddy records that indicated he examined the patient at times when, in fact, he had not. Manger prescribed a man Percocet, OxyContin, both powerful painkillers. After the investigation, he was ordered to enroll in prescribing practices and record-keeping courses. In May 2013, Manger was cited and fined $350 for failing to submit a quarterly declaration in conjunction with his probation. And in November 2014, medical board officials filed a petition to revoke Dr. Manger's probation. Doing so could result in the loss of Manger's physician's and surgeon's certificate. The new petition involved Manger's treatment of a 40-year-old man with chronic back pain. Although the patient's quality of life did not improve, Manger continued prescribing him OxyContin. He later added in Ritalin when a man said he could not stay awake. In doing so, the medical board alleges that Manger acted unprofessionally and failed to develop an objective-oriented treatment plan. A decision is still pending in that petition. In ProBluca, analysts shows Major was the third leading hydrocodone prescriber in California in 2012. And in medical news, CRE is a new and frightening superbug. The bacteria can kill up to half of patients who get infections a rate much higher than other resistant infections such as MRSA, otherwise known as MRSA. The bacteria are also sometimes referred to as the nightmare bacteria. CRE is perhaps the most feared of all superbugs because it resists even last defense antibiotics. The deadly pattern of illness began to emerge in 2012 at hospitals in Seattle, Pittsburgh and Chicago. Investigators traced the cause to a specialized endoscope threaded down the throat of a half a million patients a year to treat gallstones, cancers, and other disorders of the digestive systems. The device, often called dudinoscopes, accumulate bacteria that are not always removed by conventional cleaning, so infections can pass from patient to patient. CRE has now infected patients closer to home. Nearly 100 patients at UCLA's medical center may have been exposed and two deaths have already been linked to the outbreak. The two people who died are among seven patients that UCLA found were infected by CRE, a number that may grow as more patients get tested. UCLA discovered the outbreak late last month while running tests on patients. It then began to notify 179 other patients who were treated from October to January and immediately notified public health authorities. The university had been cleaning the scopes according to standards stipulated by the manufacturer. The two scopes involved with the infection were immediately removed and UCLA is now utilizing a decontamination process that goes above and beyond the manufacturer and national standards. Yet, neither the scopes manufacturers nor the FDA have publicized or offered guidance on a problem. So many doctors who use the scopes and most of the patients they treat, they don't know the risks. Nor do they know the steps that can be taken to cut down on those risks. The FDA says that it's aware of and closely monitoring the infection risks associated with the scopes. 
The FDA also says that some parts of the scopes may be extremely difficult to access and clean thoroughly, and effective cleaning of all areas of the Duden scope may not be possible. The agency is studying the problem and working with manufacturers to determine whether new cleaning protocols should be mandated or the scopes should be redesigned entirely. Meanwhile, the scope's life-saving ability to detect and treat potentially fatal digestive disorders outweighs their infection risks. Few dispute the scope's importance. Every year, the FDA inspects several hundred clinical sites performing biomedical research on human participants. It occasionally finds evidence of substantial departures from good clinical practice and research misconduct. But an investigation published in the Journal of the American Medical Association claims the FDA has no systemic method of communicating these findings to the scientific community. This leaves open a possibility that research misconduct detected by a government agency goes unremarked in the peer-reviewed literature. Researchers reviewed 78 published papers on clinical trials, which the FDA labeled official action indicated. This label means the agency found objectionable conditions or practices significant enough to warrant regulatory action. Yet, only three of the published papers mentioned the OAI, or official action indicated, status of the trials. The violations included researchers falsifying data and occurrences where clinical trial participants should have been ruled ineligible. Such issues raise questions about the integrity of a clinical trial and mention of these problems is missing from the relevant peer-reviewed literature. The FDA does not typically notify journals when a site participating in published clinical trial receives an OAI inspection, nor does it generally make any announcement intended to alert the public about the research misconduct that it finds. The documents the agency discloses tend to be heavily redacted. As a result, it is usually very difficult or even impossible to determine which published clinical trials are implicated by the FDA's allegations of research misconduct. When the FDA finds significant departures from good clinical practice, those findings are seldom reflected in the peer-reviewed literature, even when there's evidence of data fabrication or other forms of research misconduct. In one of the illustrative cases, the researcher eventually pleaded guilty to fraud and was sentenced to prison after poor results were hidden and a patient died from the treatment. Although this episode is described in detail in FDA documents as well as court documents, none of the publications in the peer-reviewed literature associated with a chemotherapy study in which the patient died have any mention of the falsification, fraud, or even homicide. Failing to notify the medical or scientific communities about allegations of serious research misconduct in clinical trials is incompatible with the FDA's mission to protect public health. The article concludes by saying the FDA should make unredacted information about its findings of research misconduct more readily available. And medical journals should require that any such findings be disclosed. And in regulatory news, 
The DWC has posted an order adjusting the physician services, non-physician practitioner services section of the official medical fee schedule. The adjustment conforms to the 2015 changes in the Medicare payment system as required by Labor Code Section 5307.1. The physician and non-physician practitioner fee scheduled based on the federal RBRVS system was part of the requirements of the Senate Bill 863 and became effective for services rendered after January 1st, 2014. The fee schedule starts with separate conversion factors for surgery, radiology, and all other services in 2014 and transitions to a single conversion factor beginning in 2017 for all services except anesthesia. The 2015 transition conversion factors reflect a blend of prior fee schedules. The new changes updates the conversion factors applying the Medicare RVS adjustments and the Medicare Economic Index inflation increase to the transitional conversion factors set forth within the regulation. And it updates the statewide geographic adjustment factors as well as adopts the 2015 National Correct Coding Initiative edits an NCCI policy manual. The Chases also updates the California-specific codes with the MEI inflation increase. The Administrative Director update order can be found on a DWC website. An explanation of changes is attached to the order, identifying the basis for the changes included in the update. California's Obamacare exchange sent erroneous tax forms to about 100 thousand households that received federal premium subsidies last year. At issue is Form 1095A, which health law exchanges must send to individuals and families showing how much money they received in 2014 from the federal government to subsidize their health insurance premiums. Covert California said it sent incorrect information on some forms because its customer data did not match what health plans had on file. There may have been a discrepancy for the person's length of coverage in 2014 and the amount of subsidy received. An exchange spokeswoman said the agency is reconciling information and sending revised forms to the affected customers later this month. She said customers will also be notified by email when updated forms are available in their online account. Overall, Covered California sent tax forms to more than 800,000 households. Obamacare customers who take taxpayer subsidies to cut down the price of health coverage must later fill out Form 1095A, which documents how much money they received in subsidies in all of 2014. But the total amount of subsidies were incorrect for a large chunk of the exchange's customers due to the, due to the disconnect between the exchange and health insurers. In some cases, the length of time a customer was insured was incorrect changing the total amount of taxpayer assistance received. The information is important for people when filing 2014 taxes. Consumers may have to repay some portion of that government assistance as part of their tax return if their income was in fact higher than what they estimated during enrollment. The blunder puts an extra burden on 100,000 households just ahead of tax season. These taxpayers were already facing what experts warn will be the most complicated tax season ever. The 1095A forms in question are new this year, 
the government's answer to the complications Obamacare introduces into filing taxes. The federal government will issue about 4 million of the new 1095A forms to Obamacare customers using the federal website. 4 in 10 low-income Obamacare participants will face sticker shock this April 15th when they discover that they owe a great deal of money to the IRS because of a little-known clawback provision in the health care law. A family of four could owe the government as much as $11,200, according to a 2013 prediction by researchers at the University of California, Berkeley. The CWCI says that the average amount paid to a California workers' compensation treating physician for a medical report fell more than 30% in the first quarter of 2014 as the state began to transition to a resource-based relative value scale fee schedule. The analysis traces the decline to changes in how various evaluation and management services are reimbursed rather than reductions in the fees assigned to the report codes. California's transition to an RBRVS fee schedule that began a year ago led to two changes affecting physician reporting. Consulting physician evaluation services are now billed using an initial visit code and associated reports are no longer separately reimbursable unless requested by the DWC administrative director, the appeals board, or a qualified medical evaluator in the context of a med legal evaluation. And the reimbursement to the primary treating physician for medical records, face-to-face -face EM services has been bundled into the face-to-face -face EM service fee and there's no longer a separate allowance for a prolonged service fee. To monitor how physician reporting changed after these changes took effect, the CWCI compared data on medical reports for service dates before and after these changes. Analysts found that while the average amount paid fell more than 30%, the changes in the average reimbursements varied dramatically by type of report. This indicates that the change in the mix of reports has been a key factor in reducing the average amounts paid. CWCI will continue to monitor the volume, distribution, and reimbursement of physician reports in California workers' comp as more developed data becomes available. The full research update report is available to CWCI members and subscribers in the research section at www.cwci.org. And that's all our news and events for this week. Please check out our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcast and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by researching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And drop by again next week for more news.